0: If you've been watching the news over the last week, you've probably seen the news coming out of Mexico. A powerful earthquake hit the centre of the country. So far, close to 300 people have been killed, although the death toll will probably rise as the rubble is cleared. I have many happy memories of Mexico. It's where I met my long-term partner, and I've also made many friends there. If nothing else, its fascinating history has and will continue to provide me with some amazing material for this podcast. For all these reasons and more, seeing the damage done by this earthquake is, for me, very saddening. I will be making a donation myself towards the relief efforts, however I wanted to do more. I've come up with the idea of releasing a special episode on Mexican history. This will be available through a Patreon page which I'm setting up. I haven't decided on the details, the exact subject matter and the price, but 100% of the money used to purchase the episodes by listeners will go towards one of the charities, I haven't decided which yet, that is helping Mexico rebuild In a few days, once I've worked out the details, I will release a short episode outlining my plan with all the relevant information. I hope this plan interests you, and you will consider purchasing the episode slash donating. Anyway, on with today's episode. Hello, and welcome to the Latin American History Podcast, episode 50, The Inca, part 3. Yes, the Inca are getting a third episode. They're just so fascinating, and there is plenty of material on them. This is thanks to a combination of the detailed records the Spanish left behind, and the fact that they are very much still a living culture. Before starting... If you're enjoying these episodes and the podcast as a whole, I would once again like to ask you if you could leave an iTunes review, like the Facebook page, or share the podcast with anyone you think might be interested. I would be very appreciative. Anyway, with that out the way, so far we've looked at the history of the Inca, how they expanded from a small city to a vast empire. And then we looked at how their society was structured from a top-down perspective. Today, I want to complete the picture by having a look at it from ground level. We will have a look at the life of an average citizen, and then examine the great city of Cusco and see what it would have looked like. We have already mentioned, last episode, how most subjects of the Inca lived in Ayus, which were extended kinship groups, and that together you and your family would work to produce food. This agricultural work was the daily activity of most people. It would have consumed much of their time. Every now and again, you might be called away to conduct meter service for the state, and this would see you doing something like building roads and storehouses, or perhaps working on the personal lands of a noble. Your life would have revolved around your Ayu and the village in which you lived. Your village would have been made up of housing units known as cancha. Each cancha was an enclosure built around a courtyard and comprising of several buildings. These were all enclosed by a wall. Almost all Inca buildings were built in a plain rectangular shape and few were more than a single storey high. They had sloping, thatched roofs, stone walls, and only one door. They also generally had no windows. Other buildings, like temples and storehouses, were also built in the cancha arrangement, although on a larger scale. You would live in a cancha no matter what your social status, although those belonging to nobles would have been much larger and elaborately decorated. That said, thanks to the Inca policy of allowing conquered peoples to retain parts of their culture, other housing arrangements did exist. If your people lived in circular huts before the Inca arrived, then you might well continue to do so afterwards. Of course, while you dealt primarily with your Ayu, and perhaps members of the neighbouring Ayus, Another person you would have had frequent interactions with was your local representative of the state, your curaca. Inca government was run on a hierarchical system. Your local curaca would be in charge of a 100 households, while his boss was in charge of 5 curacas, so 500 households. It went up like this with people overseeing 1,000, 5,000, 10,000 and eventually 20,000 households until you got to the highest level Apus and other provincial governors. The average farmer would not have had much contact with these, however. Instead, they would deal directly with their local kuraka, who was in charge of ensuring that your Ayu provided the correct amount of tax and labour. If you committed a crime, you would also deal with the state via the Karaka. If the two parties were administered by the same Karaka, then he would deal with the crime and make a judgment. If one party was under the jurisdiction of another Karaka, however, you would go up the hierarchy until the lowest level of administrator which you had in common was found. If you were accused of a crime against someone from a distant Ayu, This might mean appearing before the provincial governor, the Apu. But, if the accuser was under the control of a neighbouring Curaca, then it would be the one in charge of 500 households who would judge. Curaca status was hereditary, and Curaca children would spend their time in Cuzco learning how to govern. While the nobility were educated, and a small class of wise men known as Amor Takuna, existed. Aside from the mandatory learning of Quechua, most people had no formal education. Instead, their knowledge of the world would consist of practical farming techniques, and this would be passed down through the community and learnt by practical experience. While the majority of common people were farmers, some were artisans who produced the goods which the empire needed. This included potters who made ceramics and textile makers. Textiles were actually the second most important industry in the empire after agriculture. Artisans would normally live in the largest settlements of a region where the administration was based. These industries were highly controlled by the state to ensure that the right amount of each product were produced in each region. Artisans worked on their products full time and were fed with the food taxed from the farmers. In effect, this made them government employees, and their status was hereditary. There were two other possible paths a commoner's life could take, although the chances of them happening to you would have been slim. It's a bit like becoming a professional athlete or a musician today. Occasionally, people were chosen to become attendants for the royal family and upper nobles. These people were identified as the best and brightest of the empire, and they were selected at a young age. They would become servants, and this was probably a comparatively cushy life. The second path was to become an Akyakona, or chosen woman. Again, these were selected during childhood from the girls who were considered to be the most attractive. They were educated in domestic jobs, and also served the nobility. Some worked in temples, some became the wives of the nobles, others produced fine textiles. Those that were considered to be the best were given the honour of being sacrificed. Like in many American cultures, sacrifice was part of religious life for the Inca. Every ritual was accompanied by some kind of sacrifice, although usually this would have been an animal, a gift of food, cloths, metal, or perhaps chicha, a native alcohol. The chicha would have been poured on the ground, while the other gifts would have been burnt. It was at major events such as wars, coronations, or natural disasters that humans were chosen for sacrifice. The victims were always children, between the ages of 10 and 15, and they were never ethnically Inca. While we cannot say what they and their families really thought about it, it was considered to be a great honor to be chosen to be sacrificed. There was no separation between church and state in the Inca empire, and there was a hierarchy of priests which ran parallel to that of government. Most of your contact with this institution would come from ceremonies conducted by your local priest. These would largely be conducted at your local temple, which would hold shrines to all the major gods. You might also cross paths with a local healer, or the sorcerer, if you required their services. The healer would speak with the spirits, who would give him instructions on how you could cure your illness. Lacking medical science, the Inca believed that illnesses were caused by supernatural forces, and thus required a spiritual cure. As well as using rituals, this often involved drinking herbal brews, so it's quite possible that these had some kind of scientific medical benefits, even if the Inca themselves did not see it like this. The sorcerers were greatly feared, and could provide you with information, or perhaps even curse people, they did this through a similar ritual to those of West African and Haitian voodoo. Some hair, nails or skin of the victim was required, and a ceremony took place to cause them harm. Needless to say, needless to say, this was illegal, and if a sorcerer was discovered, they and their family would be put to death. There was one more religious figure who you might meet, although most never would, the oracle. These were few and far between, and had the power to use divination to tell the future. This power was also possessed to a lesser extent by your local priest, so most people would consult him instead. The priest would examine the lungs of a llama or another animal, or how spat out coca leaves fell, to work out what the best course of action was. The Inca year was organised around the public rituals and ceremonies which took place at different times. To keep track of these, two calendars were kept. The day calendar was based around the sun and was basically the same as our modern one. It was used to determine when crops should be planted and harvested. The night calendar was based on the moon and had 328 days. Obviously this would mean that the calendars did not correspond, and that they would move around in relation to each other. It's not known how the Inca dealt with this, or if it even bothered them. Throughout the year various ceremonies would take place, with those whose dates were determined by the sun mostly relating to agricultural movements. The three largest religious festivals were Kapak Remi in December, Aimore in May, and Inti Rami. In June. Kapak Rami celebrated the rains, and it lasted around a month. There would have been lots of rituals, dancing and chicha drinking, and it culminated in a grand sacrifice on the last day of the festival. Aimore was the harvest festival, and it involved feasting on grain and sacrificed llama meat. There would have been dancing in the fields and requests to the gods to ensure that the harvest lasted until the next year. Inti Remi was apparently introduced by Pachacuti and it was dedicated to the sun god. Its epicentre was a sacred hill near Cusco where ceremonies would take place. Only royals could attend these and there were large sacrifices involved. Of course, There were many more minor celebrations over the year, and they would have been a regular part of your life as an average Inca subject. So far we have discussed the lives of the conquered people of the empire, the people who probably made up most of its population. Of course, if you were a local noble who had accepted Inca rule, your life would resemble that of an Inca noble, and you would have been converted into a curaca, but this was not the lot of most people. There was, however, one other group of commoners who had a slightly better existence. These were the people who were Inca by blood. Even if you were not a noble, if you were ethnically Quechua or Inca, and came from Cusco or the surrounding area, you were in a different social category to the rest of the population. This gave you access to government jobs and a better life than your average farmer. Aside from the administrators, who were assigned to rule the different parts of the empire, if you were one of these people, you probably lived in or close to Cusco. So let's take a look at the great city. The city was possibly built in the shape of a puma, and it was divided into five sections. Four of these corresponded with the four quarters of the empire and residents from each had to live in their section of the city. The central section was reserved for the native Inca inhabitants, and this was the grandest part of the city. Around the edge of this centre was a band of farmland, which separated it from the other parts of the city. This was probably to emphasise its importance, and the importance of its inhabitants. The centre was arranged in a grid pattern, and there were two large squares within its borders. These were apparently covered in a layer of sand brought up from the coast. The outer sections of the city were organised in wheel shapes, with roads running out like spokes from a central point. All in all, around 100,000 people may have lived in the city and its surroundings, far from an insignificant amount. The focuses of the city would have been the royal palaces and the Temple of the Sun. These were the most spectacular buildings in the city, although the general standard of architecture would have been better in Cusco than the rest of the empire. The Coricancha, or the Temple of the Sun, was the most important temple in the empire. Its walls were covered in gold, and its courtyard was filled with gold statues. It was home to various grand shrines, as well as an observatory for keeping track of the skies and the calendar. It, along with the palaces, were built using the Inca's famous mortarless stonework. Huge stone blocks were gathered, and carved so that they fitted exactly against each other. Some are so closely slotted together that you cannot even fit a knife blade between them. This was an advanced technique that would have been extremely time-consuming and labour-intensive. Much of the most important parts of these buildings were actually underground, as strong foundations were required to support them. Just outside the city was another of the most important Inca structures, and another which used this technique, Sacsayhuaman. This actually predates the Inca, but they made it their own and expanded it. It sits on a hill and was probably a fortress. It had huge walls and a massive central plaza. Some of the stones used here are the largest in any pre-Columbian American structure. It's unknown exactly how they were brought to the site, as the Inca lacked the wheel. You can still visit it today, and it's an impressive testament to their skill. That brings our look at the Inca to an end. Of course, we will be returning to them later, when the Spanish arrive. Next episode will be the last, looking at the pre-Columbian history of Latin America. We will look at the cultures of Brazil, Paraguay, and the southern Cone which today consists of Argentina, Uruguay and Chile. It will also include a review of what we've covered so far and what we can learn from the pre-Columbian peoples. Until then, thanks for listening.